0: Thank you so much for listening, so let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, and today we're joined again with Ronnie Cummins, who is the founder of the Organic Consumers Association, commonly known as OCA, and been a longtime partner of ours, and he's written a new book, Grassroots Rising, and there's a long subtitle to it, will let him explain. But he's here to talk to us about that book and really um, inspire us to action and catalyze our efforts to some very important uh, initiatives. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Ronnie.
1: Good to be with you again.
0: All right. So what inspired you to write this book?
1: Well, I, the last book I wrote was on genetically engineered food and, and farming and uh, so this is along the same lines much of the book talks about how we need to transform our food and farming system not only in the united states but worldwide if we're going to solve a lot of these problems that we're seeing the environmental pollution the health problems the the uh, climate crisis the fact that we have so much poverty in rural areas across the world including uh, in the united states and so What I talk about here is the next stage of organic food and farming, which uh, we're calling regenerative. So regenerative organic food and farming and the way we use the land, including forestry, uh, can really solve a lot of these uh, problems that we have that on the surface people are attributing to other factors.
0: Yes, the uh, initial efforts in genetically engineered uh foods it was really created one of their primary arguments was that it was going to solve world hunger we know that is just the absolute opposite but what you're proposing here is indeed a solution to providing plentiful food for the bulk of the world in fact you can expand on the fa- uh, the uh, premise not the premise but the observation that the vast majority of the food created in this world is created by small farmers not these giant mega corporations
1: That's exactly right. And, and you know, the way that we have traditionally grown food for the last 8, 10,000 years and the way we've raised animals the last 20 or 30,000 years uh, is really organic, organic and pasture-based and this wild experiment that industry unleashed on us uh, since the second world war using toxic chemicals and synthetic fertilizers and, genetically engineered seeds and animal factory farms uh, has proven to be a disaster. And not just for the farmers and the animals and the land, but our public health has suffered considerably. And so part of our long-term call to, uh, as you put it so well, take charge of your health, take charge of your diet. Uh, We can take charge of our environment and really our whole economic system, uh, if we will transform this degenerative food and farming and land use system we have now uh, into one that is organic and regenerative. So what do you think some of the first best steps
0: are for the average person watching this?
1: Well, in my book I talk about how there's four major drivers of uh a system in this case a degenerative system we have or the new system we'd like to have regenerative the first and most important part is education and awareness Uh, what what you do so well with mercola.com and what oca strives to do organicconsumers.org and regenerationinternational.org is educate the people a mass of people uh, and I think we're succeeding in that. The the market for organic food and pasture raised food, regeneratively uh, produced food and products in the United States is somewhere around 50 to 100 billion dollars. This is still just uh, uh, you know part, but it's happening. So this education is number one, uh, but it's not enough to be uh, aware. Uh, we need to practice what we. Uh, what we preach so that every time we pull out our wallet we're thinking about is this going to be a regenerative purchase that's going to benefit our health and the environment or is it degenerative so we got to we got to act out our beliefs uh, in the marketplace and create the change the second thing we're seeing is it's innovation innovation of farmers innovation of ranchers innovation of people who take care of our forests and wetlands and people who are innovative like Mercola.com in terms of educating the public. Uh, We need need these kind of innovations that we have, but we also need these to be highlighted, spotlighted, scaled up. Uh, The third thing we need is uh, hopefully policy change. Uh, all the way from our local school boards and park districts to the White House. Uh, Right now we have policy change. Uh, We have policy that favors big corporate special interests like Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, Big Pharma, Wall Street, and so on. If we have policies that support uh, organic and regenerative and natural health, obviously we're gonna be able to scale them up uh, faster. And the final, the fourth thing we need in order to scale up best practices is money and this is private money uh, that investors can invest but it's also public money our savings accounts our retirement plans our pensions uh and there's a myth going around that we don't have enough uh, money to have a green world to have the kind of world that we would all like to live in where everyone can eat organic food where everyone has access to natural health uh, practices where we can swim in our lakes and rivers and and uh, enjoy nature and not have an epidemic of chronic disease and mental health problems physical health problems. so education uh, innovation policy and investment are the four things that will drive and that are already driving this Uh, this change of paradigm it's just that uh, as we're noticing uh, we're not moving quickly enough in that direction and so I wrote the book to inspire people to uh, be hopeful instead of pessimistic to look around us at the positive examples of regeneration that already exist and to encourage us to get together with our friends and neighbors and families and coworkers and people who think like us to push this change uh, more rapidly. Because obviously, we are in a still in a degenerative phase, uh, but we can move out of this. And I think this year, 2020, uh, is going to be the beginning of a, a pretty enormous global awakening.
0: Well, good. So as we're recording this, it's January of 2020 and, uh, obviously the middle of winter for most, but your primary base is in Minnesota, Northern Minnesota. So you are now in San Miguel in Mexico, which is uh, quite a contrast to Northern Minnesota, but down there in San Miguel, it's a bit of an, an arid environment, but you've created, uh, a regenerative agricultural system. Uh, that has integrated some of these practices, such as regenerative farming practices, and integrating poultry and uh, into the system. and And so, why don't you describe the extent to what you're how you're applying these principles in your own farm?
1: Yes. Well, as part of a global regeneration movement, we're constantly uh, have our eyes open to see if we can find a better way to do things. Best practices. Uh, we call it and we're especially looking at best practices that can be scaled up you know not just on one farm or 10 farms or a thousand farms but millions and so uh, we have been for 10 years uh, running a research and teaching farm outside of san miguel de allende and the red smack in the middle of mexico it's the high desert area It's an area, we get about 20 inches of rain a year, uh, which sounds like pretty good. That's about what London, England gets. The problem is we get all this 20 inches over the space of four months, and we don't get any rain the other eight months. And we get very uh, intense sunlight, and we're high elevation. So it's a difficult place. Uh, But if you look uh, at the statistics, 40% 40% of the world's surface uh, is characterized uh, as semi-arid or arid. Uh, and that's the type of area we're in here. So it's, a, uh, it's not unusual uh, for the global landscape, but it is in the United States, uh, only West Texas and the Southwest looks like it does down here. But what's, what's difficult as a farmer or a rancher uh, if you live in the semi-arid or arid parts of the world is not only that your rainfall is uh seasonal and you don't get a whole lot of it uh but that it is almost impossible to raise crops on a lot of this terrain and so what people have done for really for for uh, uh thousands of years is graze livestock uh, on these degraded semi-arid arid lands the problem is that uh, they have been overgrazed much of this uh, 40% of the world's surface. So about six months ago we were holding a workshop uh, at, at the research farm here V Via Organica uh, and it was on compost organic compost and how to make the best compost you can get and we were teaching about Dr. David Johnson from New Mexico State University in the U.S. who we've discovered uh seems to be making some of the best compost compost tea in the whole world Um, so we were teaching about that and then after the workshop this this farmer he's uh probably 60 years old he came up to me and he said uh, we've come up with a system about an hour and a half from here uh, that we think would interest you Uh, we are using common uh, desert plants the agave uh, which would look like a cactus uh, it 's a type of cactus to most people, uh, and these trees that you see growing in places like Texas or uh, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, but they 're very prevalent down here, mesquite trees. Uh, he said we 've figured out a way to closely uh, intercrop agave plants with the mesquite trees so that we can produce the world 's cheapest uh, animal forage or fodder, uh, and it's very nutritious. And these are plants that don't require any irrigation. And meanwhile, the photosynthesis of these plants is among the highest in the entire world for the agave. Uh, So it sequesters enormous amounts of carbon uh, while it's producing the world's uh, cheapest, most nutritious uh, feed supplement. And restoring the earth. And I said, wow. I said, when can I come and visit your farm? We set up a date within a week. Uh, we brought a group and uh, watched his sheep and goats uh, eat this fermented, uh, chopped up agave and, and mesquite pods like it was candy. Uh, and it was amazing. And it cost five cents a kilo to make this, or 2.2 pounds so uh we said well why why are you the first one to figure this out well it it comes down to fermentation just like uh natural health advocates and nutritionists have rediscovered the ancient tradition of how good fermented foods are for us um what they discovered was uh these big agave plants uh, you know, if you try to chop them up, the, the leaves of them, or they call them pancas in Spanish, the enormous leaves. You try to chop those up and feed them to an animal. Ah, the animal doesn't really want to eat those uh, because apparently they have saponins and lectins at pretty high levels in them. Now, these are things that the plant evolved to have them, these compounds, because they don't want animals eating their leaves until they get to the to the seed uh, formation period of their life, 10 years or so into it. Um, but th- what, what these farmers, and it turns out they were retired college professors, too. I mean, that's partly why they were able to figure this out. Uh, one of them was an expert on the mesquite tree, uh, which doesn't look that impressive when you see these mesquite trees. I'm sure we've all seen them. Uh, when we were in West Texas or in the Southwest, the desert, they're kind of shrubby looking. Uh, they have these bean pods that come out uh, in April, May, June. Uh, look like uh, string beans almost, bean trees. Uh, but these trees have one enormous uh, important factor. They sequestered, uh, excuse me, they put nitrogen, they fix nitrogen into the soil and mother nature again, why, why are there always mesquite or other acacia trees growing where agaves grow around the world in these degraded uh, dryland landscapes? Well, it's nature's way of trying to repair eroded uh, semi-arid lands that these trees proliferate and they don't look that impressive above ground until they get uh, you know, it takes 20, 30 years for a mesquite tree to be quite sizable. But uh, their roots, if we could see them, we would be very impressed because their roots are going down 100, 125 feet. Uh, and what their roots are doing is fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere uh, that, the, that the trees breathe in. And they're, they're reaching out for all these minerals. That are, that are deep in the ground in, in semi-arid areas. Well, uh, so if you have those growing in an environment with the agave, the agave grows and adds, uh, you know, huge amounts of, of biomass every year. And so it's pulling nitrogen and other minerals from the ground in order to grow that fast. Uh, but if it's growing next to a nitrogen fixing tree You've got a biodiverse system that will go on and on and on. And so the bottom line is uh, what really grows in, in desert and semi desert areas are these types of trees and these types of agave or cactus. Uh, but we never knew uh, that these agaves could be a source of animal feed because unless they're fermented, uh, these saponins and lectins are. Uh, nearly indigestible for animals and they won't eat them unless they're starving okay yeah. so these guys hey,
0: well, well, let's stop let's stop there how do you ferment the agave and the mesquite what's the, okay. the recipe because it's intriguing
1: yes you take uh, the agave is has very large leaves some of them weigh 20 well 40 40 to 80 pounds one leaf they're giant uh they're giant trees so you take the lower the lower to the ground leaves, the older growth, you simply saw it off or chop it off with a machete. Okay, you've got a big, you've got a big leaf that then you could chop it up with a machete, but you can't get it very fine. Well, these guys, uh, Juan Frias uh, in particular, invented a machine, simple machine uh, that will chop up this very tough uh, leaf into looks like green coleslaw when it mm. comes out of the machine and this machine is pretty darn simple it costs five thousand dollars we bought one right away uh, one machine will service you know five or ten communities uh, and so it comes out like coleslaw okay if you bring your cow over there or your horse to eat some of this it looks a little more appealing now as the green coleslaw they won't eat it they mm-hmm. can smell that has got some stuff that might be good for making soap like saponins, mm-hmm. but they're not very tasty and they're not going to feel very good when you eat them. So they don't, they don't want to have anything to do with that. But what you do then is you put it into a container. We use these, uh, five gallon, uh, buckets with a lid, you know, sort of like there. wallpaper paste, right? Yeah, and, uh, you, you put this green coleslaw, you shovel it into one of these, and then you, uh, when it's halfway full, tamp it down. Uh, with a, we're using four by fours, uh, a crude method, but you're trying to get the oxygen out. Once you've tamped down the half, you fill it up, you tamp down that, you put the lid on. You put this aside, uh, in 30 days, uh, it will ferment, and then when you do a lab test, uh, these saponins and lectins have been transformed into sugars and carbohydrates that uh, it also turns it it's a gold color and so for it'll last for two years um, wow
0: so you don't you don't have to inoculate it They're just using the indigenous bacteria that are already on the plant
1: yeah yeah it's got so much sugar in it that uh in the in the anaerobic or semi-anaerobic environment it goes crazy with that 30% sugar and really begins to ferment. In fact, after a couple of days, when we put the lids on, we start getting a little alarmed Mm -hmm. because we could see the methane uh, actually coming through the closed lid on the sides. And we said, oh my goodness, we just filled 1,500 of these. Are we gonna have a giant explosion that's gonna blow the roof of of the shed off or what? but uh we is learned oh, is it is it methane or co2 uh, i think that's methane coming methane? out okay i'm not positive but that's what someone told me but we learned don't stack these five gallon buckets on top of one another for the first 30 days just have them because uh, you don't want that added pressure but lo and behold after 30 days um uh, we um uh, We started, because the the original farm, the the only farm in the world uh, that's doing this on on a scale right now, uh, they only feed it to their sheep and their goats because that's what they they raise. But uh, I asked the scientists right away, I said, uh, what about pigs? What about chickens? Uh, You know, what about horses? What about cows? Some of the other animals that we have. They said, well, we don't know. Uh, but we assume they will react similarly. Um, and so we said, all right, well, we're going to try it out. So we immediately put it out for our chickens, uh, cause we've got a several thousand chickens in a outdoor, uh, and they, they loved it immediately. They wow. were all coming around eating it. And then, uh, we fed it to, uh, our pigs. We've got some of these Duroc, uh, they're dark skinned, uh, Pig that does well with being pasture raised, and you know, with a hot sun, they do a lot better than the white-skinned pigs. Uh, they were rolling around in it, loving it, uh, and uh, so we've advanced a little further. Uh, we've found out now that you can feed uh, you can feed pigs up to fifty percent of their diet can be this fermented uh, uh, agave and uh, that the chickens, uh, we're around 20, 30% of their, uh, their rations now are, are this. And with the sheep and the goats, uh, in some, some of the, the trial areas, up to 80% of the ration. So the importance of this is, uh, first of all, if you're a small farmer, you can't afford alfalfa, and you can't afford hay during the dry season. Uh, and it's, it's too expensive. We can't afford our chicken feed that we have for our organic free range chickens. Uh, we can't afford it in the sense that it makes our eggs and our meat too expensive in the marketplace, uh, for people to buy. But when you start looking at, Oh my God, what if I could reduce my feed costs Mm -hmm. by, uh, 50% Fifty percent, or even three quarters, uh, with this stuff that costs a nickel or a dime, yeah. and uh, then I wouldn't have to overgraze my animals. Uh, you know, they'd still graze because it's good for them. They get a lot from that grass that they really need, but you wouldn't have to uh, have them outdoors every day. You know, uh, overgrazing on pastures that are that are not in good shape. So. This is pretty amazing stuff. And then what we found is that um, if you do a lab analysis of just the fermented agave, uh, it's about 9%, I think, protein, uh, Mm. which is, you know, it's pretty good, but alfalfa is more like 16, 18%. So uh, what these farmers who are also retired scientists figured out is if you put 12%, of the mix in your fermentation, uh, if it's the pods of the mesquite trees, the bean trees that I described, it'll shoot the protein level up to about 18. And that is uh, about the same as alfalfa, but as the scientists have pointed out, there's a lot of other things in this too Mm -hmm. that make it better than alfalfa. So, uh, one of the things about alfalfa in especially in dry land areas this 40 percent of the world it's like uh it is around here is um alfalfa takes a lot of water uh you have to irrigate it uh in the dry season and just in general uh, this the agave plant uh uses 126 the amount of water to produce a gram of biomass as alfalfa. In other words, these desert plants have evolved over millions of years to utilize water uh, and moisture in a really efficient way. And uh, they're called a cam plant. There's three different kinds of plants in the world, the C3, the C4s, basically grasses, crops, and these CAM, these desert plants which uh, the difference with the desert plants is their leaves, uh, the opening in the leaves, which is called a stomata, on the bottom of their leaf, even these giant agaves, it does, it does not open during daylight hours. Mm-hmm. It only opens at night after sun, sunset. And these plants literally suck the moisture out of the air all night long. Uh, and then when daybreak comes, the stomata closes up. Uh, and what that means is that during the during the day, you don't have the kind of evaporation of water that you would have from a from a, gra- a, a pasture grass or a or a crop. And so these these plants are enormously uh, adept uh, at uh, saving water uh, in their leaves, in their pancas. Uh, they can go years with no rain. Uh, and they can survive pretty harsh temperatures they can survive as long as it doesn't get colder than 14 degrees fahrenheit uh they're fine uh i mean that means they don't grow except in southern parts of the u.s but um and but they can survive 135 degree fahrenheit temperatures and little or no rain and they require no irrigation and so this is pretty amazing and i mean why did we why did we why were we able to discover this uh well it's because we were on the lookout for best practices one of those farmer innovation is really the key out there everything we need to know uh to get even beyond organic uh someone's already doing it and chances are someone's doing it right in your region uh you just haven't heard about it so the other factor, you know, we're trying to educate people now because typically agaves and mesquite are considered to be worthless, <laughs> nuisance plants, you know, except for.
0: One clarification. The only part of the mesquite you're using is the bean pod, not the, the bark or the wood, wood part, right?
1: Oh, well, you use those too when they grow up. Uh, one of the things you can do, these scientists have figured out. Is if you uh, if you prune part of the branch as well as the bean pod, that actually that branch has a lot of good uh, nutrients and protein in it, and it's it's a hell of a lot easier to prune part of the branch than it is to just pick off the. Okay. These things have nasty thorns. Yeah, yeah they yeah. they've invented a machine also that chops up the branches and the thorns. Uh, And also hammers the, uh, it's called a hammer mill. Uh, It hammers the seeds because the seeds are extremely hard in these mesquite trees. Again, that's an evolutionary thing Mm -hmm. because uh, Mother Nature does not want the animals to eat the seeds and digest them. They want the animals to eat the seeds, have their digestive system take off part of the coating and then poop them out and you see the trees are growing out of the animal manure so but if you can crush the seeds uh you got some really nutritious material in there so, so this, this combination is this, this is a separate
0: machine so you got two machines a shredder for the al, the uh, agave and then the the hammer mill for the mesquite yeah
1: and you simply put the mesquite uh you know in there at the last and uh, it doesn't have to be a mesquite. Any of these nitrogen-fixing trees that are common in drylands areas. Uh, in Africa, uh, for example, they're called acacia, the variety. They're all over the place in the poorest, most degraded landscapes. Uh, in a place like Australia, Lucana, uh is a type of fast-growing uh, nitrogen-fixing fodder tree for, for livestock. Uh, uh, uh th- they have different names around the world, but the, the common thing are that these are the neglected trees that you find in dry land areas that are not suitable uh, for raising crops. And so the, the enormous potential, and then I, I, looked, I looked up uh, you know the literature, the scientific literature on this, and I found that agaves in the whole world uh, there are four trees that uh, have this rapid photosynthesis that sequesters so much carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, it is Japanese cypress, Monterey pine, African palm uh, oil, and uh, what's the fourth? I, I forget the fourth here for a moment. But um, the agave is right in there, uh, sequestering 40 tons of carbon that's uh, that's not co2 that's carbon multiply that by 3.67 to get the co2 per two and a half uh, acres per year so these things grow so fast one scientist in uh, india has said what bamboo is to the areas of the world that get a lot of rain uh, agave is to the dry lands wow. and so the enormous importance of this um, is. That the 40% of the world that is the semi-arid, arid lands, these are the poorest people in the world. Uh, these are also the soils that are the poorest, that have the least carbon. You know, the world soils used to have between three and seven percent uh, carbon organic matter in them. You know, the the world average now is around one percent. This is literally the key to climate stability: is to get that carbon dioxide that used to be in the soils and the trees and the plants. Get it out of the atmosphere, get it back where it belongs, where it'll make uh, rainfall infiltrate into the soil better, where it makes the soil more uh, fertile so that the the grasses you're growing or the whatever you're growing, the trees, the crops uh, will be more nutritious. So So I'm...
0: So you've given given an excellent prescription for remediating the land in these arid, in these arid conditions. And I'm wondering, uh, you've got a variety of different animals, chickens for certain, and if you could relate how that project is going, if you're integrating some of the holistic herd management that Alan Savory teach, teaches, mm-hmm.
1: and if you're, are you an Alan Savory hub down there, or? We're not right at our farm, but it's the same principles. I mean, essentially, holistic management what they produce is grass, you know, mm-hmm. for the animals, uh, and they do it in a really good way, restoring the environment. And this system, yes, we're grazing animals in there too, uh, in between the agaves and the mesquite trees. But in addition to grass, uh, what we're growing are these uh, uh, this feed supplement, this uh, fermented forage. And so uh, the importance, partly, of all this system is. There's not one chemical required in -hmm. this whole process. This whole process is inherently organic. Uh, That's incredibly important because, you know, like lamb lamb burgers. Uh, I know in the US lamb burgers are, you know, they're really tasty, they're very nutritious, uh, but they're, you know, they're $12 a pound in Whole Foods. You know, they're $10 a pound at my co-op in Minneapolis. Uh, believe me these these type of farmers are getting less than a dollar a pound uh, right now for their sheep and for their mutton for their lamb for their mutton so we're just today we've got an organic certifier out looking at one of these operations we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get uh, organics out of all this so the chicken uh, instead of us spending uh 45 cents a kilo for our chicken concentrate which is what organic uh feed for chickens costs now like i said this is one uh this is five five to ten cents so if you can reduce your uh your feed bill uh that portion of it by that amount what we're going to end up with is still the best kind of eggs you can get because of our organic free range and still very healthy meat but we'll build to price it uh, at a level that everyday people can can afford uh and uh, so the same thing with pork, the same thing with with um with the uh sheep goats uh and you know we have horses uh we do horseback rides. Dr. mercola has been on one of them uh our biggest expense with our horses is the alfalfa, you know I mean. These guys are, uh, they like to eat alfalfa.
0: Can't you feed them the the, uh, agave, fermented (laughs) agave? Yes,
1: we're starting to experiment with that. And we're, uh, our horses are a little spoiled, so uh, you have to get them kind of used to it. Uh, It's sort of like a lot of people, they turn up their nose when they first try uh, um, sauerkraut or uh, the, oh, kimchi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, after you start to get a little used to it, you see that, oh, I like this stuff. It makes me feel good, and, and do you, like do, you
0: do you notice any improvements in the health of the animals if you're feeding this? Because it would seem like it would improve their microbiome.
1: There are, chemical, there are substances uh, that, that have shown up in the lab reports that indicate they would strengthen the immune system of the animals uh, there's growth factors that are natural, but this is so brand new that literally, I mean, we're, we're seeking funds right now from the city government, state government, federal government, investors, to uh, you know push this a little further. Uh, we do have the basic information there. It does look like it will be uh, of health benefit uh, to the animals. Uh, now it's not, you know we don't want to go to you don't want to just coop up the animals and feed them nothing but this. you probably yeah. could you could yeah. still fatten them up, but we know that animals grazing out there on a wide variety of grasses and forbs they're getting things in their diet that we don't even understand but they need so we're continuing to graze we're using the uh, we're using solar fencing uh, to where we can keep the animals away from the the small seedling trees uh but still have them build able to graze on the grass and then we feed them back at their uh we bring them in at night because we have coyotes and you know some wild dogs and other things at night we feed them the uh the uh, for uh, forage the forage and uh, so far so good and i've uh, uh, everyone is looking at uh how do you like mexico has a big Uh, program now where they're trying to reforest the country Uh, and the problem is if you try to reforest uh, in a climate you know the the climate like this which is sixty percent of Mexico uh, the trees won't grow uh, unless you water them at least the first few years even mesquite you do have to water it uh, the first dry season so they can't figure out what to do uh, and In fact, I've got a meeting next Monday with the national head of the reforestation program. I'm going to try to convince her uh, uh, to look at this uh, technique and see if there's some some interest because uh, uh, we got to scale this up and we got to scale it up pretty quickly uh, if we're going to take care of the problems that are, you know, driving the forced migration. I mean, the whole reason we have a immigration uh, crisis uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border is really it's rural poverty. You know, if people weren't so darn poor, which leads back to if they didn't live in such dry, degraded landscapes, uh, they wouldn't be seeking to come to the U.S. except for a visit. You know, yeah. uh, and so we can solve this immigration problem. We can solve this this problem of rural poverty. We can solve the problem of You know a lot of the small farmers they can't even afford to eat their own animal you know like the lamb on a regular basis they have it for celebrations and so on but they should be able to eat uh, lamb burgers on a regular basis in the rural countryside right now they can't afford to uh they will be able to and the long run if we if we restore the landscape uh things like corn and beans and squash will grow again because it's become nearly impossible to grow the traditional corn beans and squash uh, in these areas uh, because of the you know the climate has changed we didn't get the rainy season this year until late Uh, we got some heavy downpours at the beginning and then we didn't get any rain for quite a while we got heavy rains again and then we didn't get our normal. We usually get a few freezes this time of year, and one of the nice thing about the about the freeze is it it kills all the, the grasshoppers. Well, this year we didn't get the freeze uh, until last week, and we had more grasshoppers. It looked like you know the plague had hit. These mm. guys were in such huge numbers, eating nearly everything in sight. Uh, and they, they ate up our corn crop uh, and our bean crop, which was looking pretty good. So uh, we need to uh, not only get, get the weather back to the way it used to be, but we need to have some feed for the animals in the meantime.
0: So are, 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 you, are you teaching the local, other local farmers this technique? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. All you need is a shredder and some five gallon buckets
1: yeah we're we're uh having seminars and we're we're paying visits we got uh mexico has an interesting system of land ownership uh this came out of the the mexican revolution in 1910 to 1920 where they divided up most of the land in the in the country and this is a pretty big country uh they divided it up into these communal holdings they call them ejidos, and uh there's 200 million acres of ahitos in Mexico. Over half of all the land in the country is owned by uh, communities. Uh, the problem is most of this land looks like the land around here. It's quote, it's degraded. You know, there's no irrigation. It's uh, not not the best land. The uh, the descendants of the Spaniards, the people who controlled things here for a long time, tended to end up still with the best land, uh, you know, over the last century, the land that had wells or that had surface water, uh, the land that got more rain and so on. So you got all these lands that are basically uh, uh, useless economically, uh, that are simply being overgrazed, that's about it. And uh, But it's interesting that we are contacting these community hey. groups, uh, these Zajitos, and we're inviting them to come to this one community where we're doing a, a pilot project and they're they're very interested in this they're uh they are they don't believe every word we say this sounds too good to be true uh in the beginning what i've noticed is until they see the sheep and the goats gobbling this stuff down that they always considered to just be garbage you know Because I mean, traditionally these plants are of some value agaves because you can produce alcoholic beverages from them. Like the most famous is there's 200 species of agaves. And one of them is called blue agave. Blue agave is what produces tequila. And so uh, there is some understanding that these plants are valuable, but no one ever understood uh, until recently, uh, and just in our tiny part of the country so far, that uh that the leaves are actually more valuable than the pineapple or the pinos that you get uh, in in year 10 and so can can
0: you you think you can use aloe to create this it's a similar plant not the same
1: aloe is in the uh yeah it grows in the same areas and this is going to be one thing that we're going to plant for biodiversity purposes because you don't want to plant just agave uh, into these pre-existing... Uh, uh, but can,
0: but can you use it to ferment it, to to provide food for the animals?
1: I bet you that we're we're talking about we want to experiment uh, a bit with that because the aloe grows really well here. The difference is that, as you know, the biomass of the aloe is much smaller. The beauty of... Uh, I've actually got one. Uh, I've got some right out here growing in my patio. Uh, these these plants are enormous. Uh, I wonder if I should uh, should I show you one? No, we can we can we can insert a
0: graphic. You can insert those. I've right. seen yeah, them so in person. Coming. They are extraordinary. The average person would have a great difficulty picking up one of these leaves. I mean, if you're <laughs> yeah. a bodybuilder, not an issue. But <laughs> eighty pound leaf is a heavy leaf.
1: With thirty percent sugar is what's yeah. in them. I mean, that's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Oh yeah, the other thing that's advantageous is, uh, you know, if you're feeding this uh, this forage to the uh, animals, but once it's fermented, a large proportion of that is liquid, like 50 percent or so, mm-hmm. and so the animals are getting a lot of water too while they're eating this, uh, which is a big it's a big plus in a dry area like this because is always yeah, at a free
0: I would almost guarantee you that water is structured water too.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's what they said. The scientists said, mm-hmm. if you analyze the water content of alfalfa, there's very little nutrition in it. You analyze this thing, this thing is supercharged with, with a, whole, a whole lot of things that are good for the animal. Yeah, uh, that, that
0: is tried- extraordinary. I wasn't anticipating that type of finding. That is... Uh...
1: Well, the other, the other, Pretty there's another thing. When when uh, when you're, uh Steve Rye from Mercola was down here visiting, uh, one of these scientists came up to us with a bottle of uh, uh, a nutritional supplement called Inulin. Inulin, I, sure, yeah, I, fructose, yeah. FOS, fructooligosaccharides, yeah. right? And he said, "Yeah, uh, Steve, and me he said, have you ever seen this?'" And Steve said, "Yeah, we we get this." Uh, Almost every nutritional supplement and vitamin company gets these from uh, Belgium from the roots of chicory plants, mm-hmm. I think. Right. and And so uh, Dr. Frias said, "Well, we get them from dehydrating the liquid in the pancus or the uh, leaves of the agave." Mm-hmm. And he said, "You know it's uh, these are really good." And so we're investigating this because this is another, this is just a byproduct of this entire thing, because we do have more liquid uh, than we actually need uh, when we're doing this, and- yeah. what, do
0: you, what do you normally do with it? Do you put, put it back in the soil, or?
1: Well, it, when, you're, when you're making the farahe, uh, you know, like the first stage when you're chopping it up, mm-hmm. you know, there's some of this liquid is falling to the ground, and so, uh, uh, but, the thing is, these leaves, there's so many agave leaves that are, that are potentially out there. Uh, we can use some of them not for forage, but for inling. And so, uh, the, and the good thing about this uh, process is that it's inherently organic as well. And, and we're going to go for biodynamic for every single stage of this process. In Mexico, your first stage to get biodynamic certification is to get organic. And uh you know, we're talking to Argon Tilt uh right now about certifying these processes. But it's amazing, you know, I mean two centuries ago the British uh they, they took they moved agave plants all over the world to all their colonies because back then hinnekin, which is one of the uh species of agave, was used uh for uh, bags and textiles and so on. It's a real strong fiber uh, for rope and so on. And there was actually a booming industry two and 300 years ago uh, in Henneken. And so uh, one good thing is that the British took these agave plants to their colonies in India and China and Africa, and were growing these for textiles uh, back then. And then once we had modern uh, equipment for uh, cotton processing and and wool processing, the Henneken kind of fell out of uh, of use. But we've had now for several hundred years these agave plants growing. in uh, according to statistics I've read, 20 percent of the world has agave plants living in them. And uh, if if one agave uh, uh, species thrives uh these others some of these others like the ones we have around here with the enormous biomass will also grow so if you're looking at uh you know like regeneration international one of our staff members lives in zimbabwe where millions of people are facing starvation right now uh but uh this is where um this is where alan savory's uh demonstration ranch is Uh, in Zimbabwe, they know about rotational grazing, uh, but what they don't know about is the value of these overlooked plants that are in their environment. And so we're looking forward to, once we can prove this uh, technique really works uh, in Mexico, north central Mexico, uh, we want to establish contact with all these regenerators around the world and see if they're interested in uh, you know coming here, checking it out, but also uh, starting to think differently about these degraded lands in their countries
0: can you can you make compost compost out of that too
1: uh it takes we are doing that with some of the uh, some of the more shrivelled up uh, pancas that we don't want to put in the mix. Uh, we just noticed that it, it takes them a long time to decompose into compost because they're so fibrous. Uh, there's a, there's a little industry that has developed pretty interesting with agave. They're building uh, construction blocks out of out of the uh, the agave because it's so strong, uh, but it's very lightweight. So you end up with you know like blocks of uh, bricks or whatever uh, that are very durable uh, uh, that are made out of this substance. So we're uh, we're going to look at looking when you look at a Mexico has 32 states, and one of the states is uh, Jalisco. That's where Guadalajara is, second biggest city in Mexico. But Jalisco alone, the state of Jalisco, as I speak, has 500 million blue agave plants growing wow. right now, and they're harvesting uh 10 percent of those every year. Um, we literally. Uh, we figured it out in this county, this is a pretty big county, uh, San Miguel, in terms of the uh, geographical uh, size. You know, we only have 181,000 people, but it's a, it's a sizable uh, county for Mexico. Uh, we figured with two and a half million agave plants uh, planted over the next 10 years, we could eliminate all the all the greenhouse gas emissions that the county puts out right now. Uh, and so it's uh and it's gonna be using land that you know we'd need to do this yeah. on thirty thousand yeah. acres, but these would be acreage that nothing is growing now yeah. uh, of, of agricultural value and where it's it, being uh bet, better, than, better than planting trees. Better and it is a kind of a the, the weird thing about these desert plants is like they're not defined as a tree, but I mean, if a tree it's is something like one. perennial yeah. and that you know puts out and produces puts biomass, out, puts carbon back like into this, is, this is an agroforestry system, we sh- you should not do it, uh, except the trees together with the agaves and the grasses, you you throw out pasture grass too. Uh, so that, and you also are, you're using some cover crops of, uh, leguminous or bean like, uh, cover crops so that you want to keep putting as much nitrogen and, uh, nutrients into the soil as you're taking out so that this system, uh, you know, is, is continuous. And also because you're going to be grazing animals, uh, in this-
0: And you want the carbon in the soil to capture the water because it's so sporadic and and it comes in in large amounts at the same time. And the only way you're going to capture that is to have the carbon in the soil.
1: That's right. And and before you do any of these systems, there is a preliminary. I mean, if you're looking at degraded landscape, imagine parts of New Mexico you've seen or West Texas or Arizona. uh, These areas where you see these gullies. that, are, that have been eroded. Uh, you know, if you're looking at a landscape like that, which is 40% of the world's surface area, uh, you first wanna do a little ecosystem restoration uh, on that eroded uh, area. And what you do is pretty simple, is you find the most heavily eroded areas, you, uh, they're called in English check dams, you pile rocks. Uh, in these heavily eroded areas, not enough to to create a dam, but almost a dam, to where when it when in the rainy season the water will just flow over. The other thing you do is, uh, I'm sure we've all seen uh, terracing, uh, you know, for agriculture around the world, where uh, rows aren't in perfect perpendicular uh, uh, shapes. They're curved when there's when there's uh, hillsides or when there's uh, you know any elevation at all. And what you do is, modern days we just flow it. We fly a drone uh, over the territory, over the area you're looking at, and you do aerial photography, and then you can send that data into a uh, a processing lab, which will give you back the information. They'll tell you things like. Here's the percentage of these this hundred acres that's covered with trees. Here's the here's the points where you need to have these what's called keyline contours. So you end up you do contour lines. You pile rocks that are around there on these contour lines, and then you plant your uh, your agaves and other trees along these contour lines and what all this does is it means that during the rainy season instead of the rain coming down elevation and taking the topsoil with it and silting up creeks and rivers and whatever it uh slows it down slows it down long enough to where it can penetrate into the ground into the uh, groundwater this type of regenerative agriculture uh uh, dr McCullough's. You ran an article of mine on your newsletter recently. So the education thing is ongoing. We're, we're uh, finding the farmer innovation. We're starting to search for the uh, policies that could uh, help scale this up because the criteria, some of these criteria for what, what is a tree, what is reforestation, what is carbon sequestration don't quite fit. Uh, and then we're going to be looking for the financing to scale this up because literally this, this regenerative practice uh, in dry lands uh, is a game changer. Uh, there are practices like this in uh, wetlands uh, and in the global north uh, that we're already seeing things like a holistic management of livestock and uh, biointensive organic uh, you know, practices. But it's it's all these practices together, the best practices from the different parts of the world, di- different ecosystems they are going to make a difference. But it's, it's you, the consumer, it's you, the reader, uh, that we need to sp- spread these uh, good news messages. And I hope you'll yeah. consider uh, buying a copy of my new book, uh, Grassroots Rising by Ronnie Cummins, where I try to, uh, paint a road map of how we can regenerate uh the world's landscapes uh, as quickly as possible so that we can uh, get back to enjoying life
0: yes indeed so and it's and you're not hypocritical either you're, you're uh actually doing what you advocate in the book and you just shared with us a really a very fascinating application of the strategies you're integrating down on your farm, and uh, pretty novel, and I think can have pretty significant impact for the 40 percent of the similar climates that are out there in the world that are really hard to to manage and and generate uh, biomass and and crops to sustain the the, uh, the farmers there. So it's a, I'm really excited about the innovation you've. Uh, found in our starting implement it's uh it's really good to see and uh, good to catch up with you
1: good to catch up with you i look forward to seeing you in florida in a couple of weeks all right